Today's scripture reading can be found on page 862, and if you're looking for one of the Bibles that are near you, one of the black Bibles, uh, we'll be reading from 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. My dear children, I write this to you that you will not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. May the Lord be glorified in the reading of his word. Before we begin our message, I just want to point out in your bulletin, there's a prayer sheet, and um, I want to encourage you to use this throughout the week. Um, The purpose of prayer ultimately is twofold. Number one, to know God, to know Him more intimately, and secondly, to make God known. And, And that's what we have in the prayer sheets that we're using right now. On one side, you'll see um, some information about God as he has revealed himself in his names. In this case, this week, it is Jehovah Menkedesh, which means God is our righteousness. He is the one that makes us right with him. On the other side is a a country and a people group to be praying for, and uh, I want to encourage us to continue uh, to be praying for the peoples of Iran um, during that, the, the crisis that is there as well as urge you to be praying for the peoples of the Philippines, um, especially those who have been impacted by the volcano and the eruption. Um, if you've ever seen what happens after a, after a volcano, it is, it's not just the eruption. It's an ongoing challenge and problem. I remember after Mount Pinatubo went off, just seeing the lahar that came down for months every time it rained, and it would literally bury whole villages in concrete, uh, and it, it, was, it was incredibly devastating. But today, the focus you'll see on the, on the back is, is Indonesia, and I want to urge you, we have many Indonesians here in our congregation, as well as our Indonesian fellowship that meets at 2 o'clock today, and be praying for them. God is doing a beautiful work there, and, and I was particularly touched because the people group that's focused in here is the Aceh. And the Aceh is in the northern part of Indonesia. It's a people group that was most greatly impacted by the tsunami. Um, Over 100,000 people amongst the Aceh, primarily Aceh people, were killed after that tsunami. But God also has been working since that time to bring a message of hope and life in Jesus Christ to the people. So let's be diligent in our praying for those that do not yet know Jesus as Savior and have hope that transcends this life. Well, today we're we're continuing our exploration in the book of 1 John. And um, the background of the theme of everything that we're doing um, begins with a song that was, well, a question that was asked in song. Before many of you were born, I realize I'm getting older and older and, uh, you know, so to me, remembering Tina Turner's words, what's love got to do, got to do with it? What's love but a second-hand emotion? Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, don't let me ever sing falsetto again. But anyway, you know, that just 
permeates my mind. And I realize for many of you, you've probably heard it, but it was on the oldie, oldie, oldie station. So anyhow, she asks a great question that I believe John in his letter is doing his best to answer. And so what we see here is a very tender address. Let's begin to look at the verses that, that we just read together. He says in 1 John chapter 2, his very first phrase in the chapter is, my little children. Now, what he means by that phrase when he says, my little children, is he's not talking about people who are necessarily young, and he's not talking about people who are necessarily immature in their faith. He is speaking with the heart of a pastor who dearly loves his people. And what he's doing is he's revealing, first of all, his heart, and even more importantly, the heart of God the Father in the way that he sees you and I. If you're a parent, it doesn't matter how old or how accomplished your children get. When you think of them, there is a tenderness in your heart that just overwhelms absolutely everything. You're proud of them, but it touches something incredibly deep. My children have already gone far beyond um, me in many of their accomplishments and who they are in their character, and yet every time I think of them, it just stirs my heart. It's a picture of God's heart for you. And so when you, when you read these words, understand that what he's getting ready to say is because he has your absolute best in mind. He wants you to discover all that God has for you. He's saying, these are the things I want you to know that God wants you to know. He uses that exact same phrase later on in verse 12, which we'll look at more next week, where he says, I write to you, little children, and he says, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. And so it's a message to every believer. In essence, what he's saying is, dear ones, the ones who are closest to my heart, what I'm telling you to do is to walk in your new identity and here's how you can begin to do that. And it's very practical. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. John has already told us in chapter 1 that we are to walk in the light. We are to walk united with Jesus. Sin is a life of shadow, of darkness, without lasting substance, and most importantly, without love. God wants you to avoid sin so that your union and your joy in him will overflow. When God in his word speaks about our sin to those that are his children, it is not uh, a voice that is condemning, it is a voice that is calling you to something greater, something more. He wants you to understand that the greatest thing in life is truly, truly living united with my son, Jesus Christ. I'm writing to you that you may not sin. And what he's saying, what John is saying is you can be different. You can be radically different. When you live united to Jesus, sin doesn't have to control your thoughts, your attitudes, and your actions. And so we begin simply by saying, avoid sin. And here's what I think he means more than anything. You need to come to the point where you understand sin, your failures, your weaknesses, even your rebellion does not define you any longer. If you have trusted Jesus as your Savior and your Lord, you have a brand new identity, and it is the identity that Jesus says you are. 
So he calls us, though, to take our sin seriously. And that when we do so, that's evidence that we really do belong to God. Now, here's an important truth. You can know about God. In fact, you can know a great deal about God and not necessarily deal with your sin. But you cannot know God personally until you acknowledge that which stands between you and God and place it on Jesus Christ. The the scripture says the demons know a great deal about God. Their theology is probably more accurate in many ways than ours is. But that doesn't transform who they are. It's not knowledge. It's about intimacy with God. When you know God, it changes how we live. But here's the good news. He starts by saying, I want you to avoid sin, but this is the heart of the Father. I mean, one of the greatest words that you should look for when you're reading through the Scripture is look for, it, for those simple little word in English, but. Here's what God has provided. Look what he says. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is, and this is, a, this is a big churchy word, he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. What he's saying is, is that we have an advocate. And the word advocate means a lawyer, an attorney. What Jesus does is he stands in the courtroom and he is defending you, not because you and I deserve it, but because he has said you are mine and therefore your new identity is my identity and therefore I will defend you to the very end. That's what he's doing. When he says, when it says we have an advocate, It means, man, we have the absolute best possible person in all the universe who is standing in our place. When you think about all those, um, the courtroom dramas that we see on television in all of our different countries, you realize that um, so often what happens is that the the outcome depends on how good of an attorney a, a person may get. It's not so much whether or not they're guilty or innocent of the crime, it's how good of an advocate they have. You have the greatest advocate in all the universe, Jesus Christ. And he has said, you and I are now not guilty because I took the penalty of your sin. That's what propitiation means. I paid the full price of your sin and and my sin. And Jesus has nailed it to the cross and says, you are innocent. You are made righteous in me. He's our advocate. And so when we do fail, when we do fall back, when we do even willfully sin, I was reading just this this morning in Psalm 19, just a reminder where the psalmist is praying, Lord, keep me from willful sins. I don't know about you, but for me, that's a prayer I need to pray a lot because there's still within me just this, the, the best way I know to describe it is this old dead Drew that lives within me who just wants to rear up and say, I'm in control. And willfully, I'll rebel against God. And so I need to pray ahead of the time, Lord, keep me from willful sins. Change me because I want to live a life that honors you. 
So we have advocate. We have legal representative in Jesus Christ. He is the propitiation who's paid the full price to rescue us from our sin and the penalty that we deserve. Now this phrase here that he uses, not only for us, but the sins for the whole world, does not mean that all religions lead to God. It means that salvation is available to everyone who trusts in Jesus, no matter um, who they are, where they're from. There are absolutely no racial or cultural borders of God's love. And the salvation that he offers through Jesus Christ is freely available to everyone because he loves all peoples on the earth. And John is just reinforcing that. He's writing into a culture that at the time was incredibly divided racially and and by class. And he's saying there are no barriers. God loves you. You don't have to measure up. You just have to trust him. You have to call upon his name. He is the way of forgiveness of sin and relationship with God when we trust in Jesus. Let me just kind of parenthetically, give you a difference between religion, and it doesn't matter what kind of religion. You can be a a person who is simply religious that goes by the name Christian, but all you're trusting in is your religion. Every religion is our attempt, a human attempt, to try to justify ourselves before God so that we can look back and we can try in our own defense to say, see what I have done. Every religion, doesn't matter what kind it's like, that is what it has in common. The gospel, the message of the scripture, is not that we can in some way work our way to God. It is exactly the opposite. It is the fact that God himself came to us to rescue us. And that's what makes um, what we read in the scripture so much different. It is God's work for us. He is the only one that can make us right. I could never, ever be good enough. I couldn't go to church enough times. I couldn't go give enough money. I couldn't be um, uh, pure enough. There's nothing I could do to make me right with God. He had to offer an advocate, his son, for me. The gospel is our good news that this is what God has done for us. And here's what he says in verse 3. And by this, we know that we have come to know him. In other words, this is how we know that it's not just a religion. It's not just trying to do good things, but we actually have a relationship with God if we keep his commandments. In other words, if there's a change in the will that drives your heart where you desire to honor God, it's evidence that something has transformed in your heart where you want to honor what he's commanded us to do. What John is doing is giving us a way so that we can have assurance that our faith is real. It's not just wishful thinking. It's not just hope. It's the evidence that's presented by our advocate in court is this, that we've been changed, that we've moved from living for ourselves to now living for God and keeping what he has commanded us to do and who he's called us to be. That's the evidence that's presented in court is that Jesus has declared us righteous because of what he has done and the evidence that they truly trust in me, that they've been clothed in my righteousness is they have a change in their will. 
and what drives them. Verse 4. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, and look, look what it says, in him truly the love of God is perfected. Jesus said it this way in, in the Gospel of John, if you love me, keep my commandments. Now, he wasn't saying that you earn my love. What he was saying is if you truly love me, this will be the natural outcome is you will live a life that seeks to please me. Um, I love my wife, and I don't keep all of her commandments. I'll just confess that up front. But I do try to live in a way that lifts her up and pleases her because some of her commandments are really bad. Just, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. But I do try to live in a way that, that honors her and lifts her up. It's the same thing. When we love God, we want to live a life that brings him joy and pleasure. Because it's the overflow of love. In him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we know that we are in him. Whoever, he, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way he walks. In other words, the evidence that my faith is real is that I'm starting to look more and more like Jesus Christ. The way he viewed other people is becoming the way I view other people. That he looks at them with love and with belief that they have immeasurable value. With a love that he's willing to die for. So, what, what John is asking us to do is to begin an examination of our own hearts. Is our faith real? Do we just have information or do we really have a connection with God where he's changing how we live? Whoever keeps God's word, the love of God is perfected in them. And this word in the original language does not mean perfect in that there's no room for growth. What it means is that we're made whole or we've fulfilled the purpose for which he has called us and created us. We're beginning to accomplish what God wants us to do. That through that love, other lives are changed and they're seeing an accurate picture of who God is and what he looks like. So if we put those truths together, that we are to to walk like he walked, and the truths from the first chapter where God says that we are light, it simply means this. If God is light that shines into the darkness and in him there is no darkness at all, then what should define your life and my life is that you and I should become more and more of a reflection I know what's in here. A reflection. This, was spo- this went so smooth when nobody was in here. We should be a reflection of his love. In other words, everyone that sees us should be seeing more and more of him. That's what he's called us to be. If they're seeing me, then there's a problem, right? That means that I'm not living, I'm not walking in the way that he walked. Because what defined Jesus more than anything is that he says, I have come to do the Father's will. He was a perfect reflection, the exact representation, the exact image of the Father. 
And now he's calling you and I to reflect that same love, that same good news to everyone we meet. You and I are the gospel. At least we're supposed to be. We are supposed to be a declaration of Jesus' great good news. But the only way it works is if we're living like Jesus. In fact, the only way it works is if we're loving like Jesus. In Galatians um, chapter 5, verse 6, there's a, a very sobering verse. Um, it's, in the, it's set in the midst of uh, a debate about uh, circumcision, about adhering to the law or having freedom in Christ. And in verse 6, the Apostle Paul says, the only thing that counts is this, living out our faith in love. What proves that we really belong to God is our love. That's what counts. So we are meant to be a reflection of God's love for us. And that's why love, real love, is not an emotion, but it is a sacrificial, self-denying love for others out of love for God. And that brings me to my third point. What is authentic love? Well, we see here in these, in these verses, in verses three through six, that love is perfected through obedience. The proof of, of our love for God is obedience to what God has commanded us. Now, the great news of, the, of, of Jesus is he will meet you right where you are. You don't have to clean your life up one bit. In fact, you can't. But he will not leave us where we are. He will change us. He will transform us. And that is a process we understand more and more of who he is and that begins to change who we are. We discover the greatness of his love. We discover that real love looks and acts like Jesus. It is a mirrored reflection of him. Jesus' love was all about his love for the Father. And here's the best, the simplest way I know to, how to put it is the difference between real love and false love is simply this. It's where it's focused. Real love is always focused outward towards others. The beauty that you see in the relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit all through the scripture is that they're always promoting and building up the other one. The Father is always pointing to the Son, The Son is always pointing to the Father. The Holy Spirit is always pointing us either to the Father or to the Son because that's their love. Their love is always outward facing, outward focus. There are two types of love in a sense that we have, and I've defined them at least for for my practical purposes as an ego love or a self-love and an authentic love. And I have a couple of symbols here. I have this little radioactive symbol um, that's next to ego love or self-love because it, it can be okay, just like radiation can be okay, but you get too much of it and it's dangerous. Now, we understand that not all radiation is bad. How many of you had a banana today? You're not sure if you had a banana today? I saw you say not today, but... 
Okay, this, anytime this week works. Excellent. All right. Did you know bananas are radioactive? Yeah, they are. Now you're, in fact, I see a glow right here. These, they're kind of like, kind of, yeah, a yellow glow. Just looks just like a banana. They are, they are slightly, but not harmful. And obviously, God has given us radiation to be able to use for good things, x-rays and, and all kinds of other things that are way over my head. But too much of it, too much radiation in your banana is not good for you. The same way with love, if it's too self-focused, it's dangerous. It can become destructive, corrosive, even to your life and to your relationships. But authentic love is sacrificial. Now, here's here's the basic difference. Self-love or ego love tends to be a transaction. I give and I'm expecting to receive. I give so that I get. The focus really is on me. I'm doing something good, maybe even something sacrificial, but the expectation in my heart is that there's something that's going to come back to me. Authentic love, on the other hand, the kind of love that God has for us is that we give without condition so that another person is blessed and built up. There is a self-denial, there's a death to self that results in a blessing to another. The great and amazing author, uh, C.S. Lewis, has helped us to understand love in a powerful way. Um, He has has a couple of books that are really, really important in this. One is called The Four Loves, and if you check with with the library table in the back, um, they may or may not have a copy here, but I promise you they have a copy in, in the library. And if you've never read The Four Loves, it is an amazing book. Because what he does is he, he takes the four words from the Greek language that are used in English to define love, and he breaks them down and shows the differences between them. And he gives four classifications of love. And, and they are, first of all, storge love, which is an affection or an empathy, and it tends to be family love. This is the love that a, a parent has for a child and a child has for, for a parent. We all need that. It's, it's an important love, storge. The second one is philios, and that's the love of a companion, of a friend. And we all need that. We all need friends. We need these relationships. They're really important. The third one is eros, which is a romantic love. Um, now, any of these loves that we have are to a certain degree, as, um, as Lewis would define them, is they're somewhat need-based. A child needs a parent's love. Needs, and so it's not necessarily a bad thing unless it becomes too self-focused. And that's why I say it can become radioactive. A parent can be so obsessed with their child and almost live their life through them that it becomes a destructive love. And we all also know that the eros, romantic love, can be very distorted especially in our world and our culture, it can become something that's, that's simply about sex and not about intimacy. So he gives those three categories of love, and then he gives agape love, the love that we see most often in the Scripture, in the New Testament, speaking of God's love for us. And it is an unconditional, sacrificial love. This is the love that Jesus has demonstrated for us. It is authentic love. Remember, 
Uh, we're going to find in, in, in the next chapter where John says God is love. He is the source of true love. It all flows from his nature, his character. And so um, we have those categories, but where Lewis in his, uh, his writing is most helpful is he helps us see the difference between need-based love and gift love. That's our two categories. A need-based love, it's easy for it to be corrupted and selfish. But a gift love is always outward-focused. C.S. Lewis puts it this way in The Four Loves. He says, need love cries from our poverty. Gift love, real love, longs to serve. Need love says of a woman, I cannot live without her. Where's the focus of that statement at? It's on me, right? That can become controlling and even abusive. But gift love longs to give her happiness, to see her become who God created her to be. It's an investment that does not expect a return. It is simply a gift. That's what God is calling us to do. Gift love is ultimately what we truly long both to receive and to be able to give because its source is God. In another great book by C.S. Lewis, The Great Divorce, he makes this statement. He says, you cannot love a a fellow creature fully until you love God. Until we have personally received an unconditional love from God, we can't really give an unconditional love to someone else. But when we do, that speaks volumes to a world that is hungry to be loved, to be accepted, to be embraced, to discover that God really does care about them. That's why this is so important. The answer to the question, what's love got to do with it, ultimately is everything because our love points people to an accurate picture of God. What Lewis says is simply is that unless you have some experience with God's love that meets truly your deepest need, you will tend to use others to build yourself up and to prove yourself. Unless you have that relationship with God, even the most passionate I love you's will really mean I need you. I need you to make me feel as if I'm worth something. And that can be very dangerous in a relationship. It can even be abusive. Real love is never controlling. It is never abusive. If you find yourself controlling your spouse or controlling another, if you find yourself manipulating them, or even worse, verbally or physically hurting another person, that is not love. It is sin. And we need to turn from it and reject it right away and recognize that there's been a radioactive response in our own heart and life because we're trying to get someone else to meet a need that only God himself can meet. It should be an indicator that we need to go to the right source. That's why God calls us 
to confess our sin, to say about it the same thing he says so that we can not only have it be lifted from our life and have the possibility of reconciliation and forgiveness happen in relationship with others, but to find the real source. You see, when I confess where I've been wrong, when I, can, when I confess what I have sinned against God and I say the same thing that he says about it, it provides a platform for his love to come more deeply in my heart and for me to experience not only his forgiveness, but his full embrace. Confession is a beautiful thing. Too often in our pride, we look at it as a shame instead of a pathway to intimacy. Church, it is a way to connect with God more deeply. That's why he says, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate who is willing to stand for us. He's already stood in our place, and now he's welcoming us into God's embrace. Anyway, I got sidetracked, sorry. Two different kinds of love. What do you have? What kind of love are you expressing towards others? Is it real or is it just a self-love, a need love? If we are to accurately reflect Jesus, we need for his love to take up more and more possession of our heart and be more and more of a reality of how we love others. We must be in Christ. We must be abiding in him um, first to be saved And then out of that union with him, we are able to love. It's not about our religious views or our church membership. It's about our union with Christ through faith. Verses three through six ultimately says this. Authentic faith has to be validated. Now, what's that mean? Well, it's really simple. I have here a piece of plastic. This piece of plastic happens to have a Starbucks logo on it, but all it is is a piece of plastic unless it has been validated. In other words, unless the person who obtained this piece of plastic went up to the authority at Starbucks, the register, gave a payment, put money down, and invested it in this card to make it Instead of a piece of plastic with a logo on it, a gift card. All right? In case you're wondering, because I know sometimes I trick you, I validated it, okay? So it's real, okay? It's worth something. Does anyone in here like coffee? Anyone? Anyone? Okay, okay, I see, I see. You know, guests always take priority. So go for it, all right? Yeah. It's 500 crowns, just so you know, okay? So you can, get some, you can get some good coffee with that. All right, enjoy that. It's gotta be real, and you can't necessarily tell from the outside. Let me give you another example. Because in the scripture, what we see is that what John's saying is that living the commandments, living the love commandments, is what proves or authenticates our faith. He goes on in verses 7 and 8 and says, 
Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, this is a new commandment that commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. What does he mean by all that? He's saying that, that I'm saying exactly the same thing that God says all through his word. The same thing that Jesus said when he was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. That is the commandment. It is both old, because it's from the very beginning of the scripture. It is also new. Because Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you. Now, how do we authenticate that? Well, if I'm truly loving, I see all these people who are putting their coats on, and so I'm going to turn the heat back on, just, just to, to do that. Um, sorry, I just see you all freezing, so. Okay. And in about four minutes, the rest of us will be, like, sweating. So there you go. All right. How do you know if it's real? Well, In the scripture, the the thing that gives us the most understanding is that God points to a specific thing that should happen in your life and my life in order to prove whether our faith is real. And I want to illustrate this in a really simple way. I have a picture uh, of a leaf, and I want to put up the picture. If you can put up the picture of the leaf, and when you find it, it's in there, trust me. It says, can you identify this? That. Okay. How many of you can tell me what that is? A leaf. Very good. Very good. Any guesses on what kind of leaf? A green leaf. Uh, You can make tea out of it, right? Yeah, it's a green leaf. Okay. Uh, All right. Well, let me go to the next picture. Maybe this will help. Can anybody tell me me what kind of tree that is based upon this? Somebody say an oak? Yeah. Well, it's definitely not a birch. I can tell you that. All right. It's a little It's a little challenging, right? From just looking at the leaf, looking at the bark. Okay, well, if I go to the next picture, in fact, I don't even have to go to the next picture. I can simply pull it out and show you. Everybody knows what it is, right? Yeah, it's an apple. Okay. The leaf on there is exactly the same. And you look in the picture, it's the exact same bark. Okay. The reason that we know this is an apple is because we're familiar with fruit. What sometimes happens even in the church, is that we can become so focused in on the leaves of religion, the bark of religion, which is important, and we don't pay attention to whether or not we are producing fruit. So often what happens, even in our discipleship, is that we gear it towards knowledge To where if a person agrees with me theologically, I will say they are a disciple. But that is not how the Bible defines a true follower of Jesus Christ. He says, if your faith is real, it will produce fruit. When I look at my life, the thing that I am to examine is not how much I know about God. It's not how good of a preacher I am, whether I'm able to articulate truths of God 
in, in a way that makes sense. It's whether or not others see the fruit of God in my life. And the, what the scriptures indicates as the first fruit of your life and my life in Galatians 5.22 is love. If my life isn't producing love for others, my faith is not of worth. Not of worth at least to the point where others are seeing who God truly is. That's what John is calling us to. He's calling us with the tenderest of hearts. He's saying, I want you to be all that God has for you. And in order to do that, we have to walk as Jesus walked. We have to love as Jesus loved. Next week, we're gonna unpack that a little bit more and we're gonna look specifically at the love of Jesus that he is pointing us to. But let me give you just a a few, actually, I'm gonna give you a little poem that kind of sums it up to a certain degree. Here are some practical words from a simple poem. Authentic love for others is silence when your words would hurt. It is patience when your neighbor is curt, which means rude. It is deafness when scandal flows. It is thoughtfulness for others' woes. It is promptness when duty calls. It is courage when misfortune falls. True love is always focused outward upon the needs of others because that's exactly what God did for us. The great mystery of the scripture is that God, the the powerful being of the universe, chose to humble himself. I was thinking about this week, and Philippians um, does such a beautiful job of describing how Jesus humbled himself. The creator of everything came and was placed inside the womb of Mary as a helpless infant. And when he was born at Bethlehem, this little baby that was helpless and in total need was actually God in flesh with curly dark hair and probably brown eyes and olive skin. And he had to have a diaper. Have you ever thought about that? The God of the universe who made everything was willing to humble himself to that point for love for you and for me. And the rest of his life was a portrayal of his humility, of his love. And when we see how he treated other people, how he was intentional to have a conversation with the woman at the well who was an outcast for society and who culturally and racially should never have been speaking to a Jew, he is intentional about being there with her in the middle of the day when everyone else was gone to form a relationship with her. That's the heart of our God. That's his love for others that he is calling for you and I to have as well. So our prayer should simply be this, Lord, I want your love to be real in me 
I want it to be seen through me. Would you show me who you are calling me to reach this week? Is it a neighbor? Is it a refugee? A person in need? A homeless individual? A family member? Maybe it's your spouse or your child or your parent? A coworker? We may be the only reflection of God's light and love that they will see. Are we reflecting him and his love accurately? The measure of our faith, the thing that ultimately counts is faith expressing itself in love. Heavenly Father, would you teach us to love like you love? Your word says that you willingly gave your son to be a sacrifice for us. It's not because you needed us. You have absolutely no need. There is no need love in you, God. There is only agape gift love. Lord, would you teach us to first love you, then love one another, and then express your love to those around us as an act of obedience and as an act of worship. Because you are a God who is worthy of all praise. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for loving me. May we become accurate reflections of your love towards others. May we walk as Jesus walked. In his great name, for his honor and glory, we pray.